Well, it's nice to be with you today. It's the first time I've been to Bowness. So my education is going to be complete after the day is over. Just a wee bit about myself, just in case you're wondering who I am. I was born in Newt Hill, born into a mining family. My father worked in Polkemic Colliery for most of his life. I was converted when I was 19 in Inverness. John Moore, who wrote the hymn Burdens Are Lifted at Calvary, led me to the Lord in Inverness when he was the pastor there. I was an OM for a couple of summers after that. Then I came into the Faith Mission, two years Bible College in Edinburgh, served for four years down in the Midlands of England, felt God calling me more to a pastoral ministry. So I studied at the Irish Baptist College in Belfast and uh, had a church in East Belfast where all the pavements were red, white and blue. And then I went to Donegal to do a pioneering work where all the pavements were green, white and gold. <laughs> and uh, then I came to Musselboro for 10 years. Then I went back to Ballymena for 10 years. Then I came back to Musselboro for 10 years. And I'm all over the place now. So <laughs> there we are. It's nice to be with you. We're going to read from uh, Joshua chapter 23. I'm reading from the ESV. Uh, it'll be up in the, in the wall here so you can follow it through. Joshua chapter 23. And we're reading the whole, the whole chapter really. This is God's word. A long time afterward, when the Lord had given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well advanced in years, just like me, Joshua summoned all Israel, its elders and heads, its judges and officers, and he said to them, I am now old and well advanced in years, and you've seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake. For it is the Lord your God who has fought for you, Behold, I have allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes those nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off from the Jordan to the Great Sea in the west. It's the Mediterranean. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you shall possess their land, just as the Lord your God promised you. Therefore be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you, or make mention of the names of their gods, or swear by them, or serve them, or bow down to them. But you shall cling to the Lord your God, just as you've done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand since it's the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back, cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you, make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your sides and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. And now, I am about to go the way of all the earth. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. But just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, 
So the Lord will bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off this good land that the Lord your God has given you. If you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and go and serve other gods and bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. You shall perish quickly from off the good land that he has given to you. We'll end at the end of the chapter. Just a brief prayer. Lord, the psalmist tells us that one day in your courts, one day, is better than a thousand anywhere else. May that be our experience today, here, in Bowness, in this building. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. don't know how familiar you are with the book of Joshua, but the last two chapters of the book of Joshua record Joshua's farewell address to the nation of Israel, in particular to the leaders, but not exclusively the leaders, the whole nation. Just like the Apostle Paul in the last letter he wrote, 2 Timothy, Joshua has reached that point in his life when he could so easily have said, as Paul did say in 2 Timothy, I have fought the good fight, I've finished the course, I've kept the faith. He knows that his death and departure, his exit, his exodus from this life is imminent. He knows that it's going to be the end of an era. His departure is going to usher in an opportunity for the people of God to make a new beginning, whatever that may mean. He's got many things to say to them in these two chapters concerning his farewell address. But here in the 23rd chapter and in the 11th verse, I think he sums it all up in a sentence. And it's a sentence not without warmth, But it's a sentence that comes across with a a warning note as well. Here's the sentence. So he said to them, be very careful therefore to love the Lord your God. The authorised version of King James translation, take good, good heed to yourselves that you love the Lord your God. Now, it would be very easy to think that this was a rather strange thing to say to these people, of all people, and at this particular time, and in that particular place. He's addressing God's people who've been with him for years. And he's saying to them, be very careful to love the Lord your God. I mean, in the light of all that God had done for them, even in the recent past, never mind the distant past, surely this was inappropriate and unnecessary. Quite remarkable that he should speak like this to a people so blessed, so privileged, over so many years. A people with a history. A people with a heritage second to none. Who exactly were these people? Well, these people were the people of whom God would later say through the prophet Amos, you only have I known of all the families on the earth. These were the people that God referred to in the book of Isaiah as Israel, my chosen. 
These were the people of whom you read in the book of Jeremiah, God speaking specifically of them. He said, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And you would think, you know, surely in the light of their election and their redemption, and now their substantial possession of the promised land in the ongoing plan and purpose of God, you'd think it was superfluous for Joshua to say to them of all people and to the leaders in particular, be very careful to love the Lord your God. I mean, they're riding on the crest of the wave. They're not scraping the bottom of the barrel. These people had entered, conquered, and possessed the promised land. It had been allocated to the tribes, but as a wise old owl, it's highly likely that Joshua saw trends appearing amongst the people of God during the final days of his earthly life that were not God-honoring. He probably saw things going on all around him that deeply concerned him. As he looked out and listened, as he saw and heard, as he pondered and prayed, he discerned that all was not well with these people. Metaphorically speaking, he heard alarm bells ringing. He saw red lights flashing. And from the box of experience, and Joshua had a lot in that box by now, he knew that people can change with the passing of time and not always for the good. I don't know for sure why he spoke these specific words, but I do know they came from the lips of one of the greatest, godliest leaders ever in the history of Israel. I know that. And I also know that the next book in the Bible, literally as well as chronologically, is the book of Judges, where the recurring note concerning the behavior of these people is this. There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So Joshua is putting his finger on something here. The striking significance of these words must not be overlooked. When I was a student in Edinburgh, Dr. Alan Redpath was the pastor at Charlotte Chapel. And he had preached a series of sermons on the book of Joshua in the middle of the last century. And he said this about this text, verse 11, the text we're looking at. He said, if I could choose the subject for the last sermon I ever preached, this would be my text. If I could choose the subject for the last sermon I ever preached, this would be my text. Alan Redpath knew in his day, as Joshua knew in his day, and as you and I know in our day, that it only takes one generation, two at the very most, that's all, and with the passing of time, things can change. Truth can be replaced with error. Light can be replaced with darkness. Freedom can be replaced with bondage. Order can be replaced with chaos. And a confident hope can give way to total despair. One generation. Two at the most. Don Carson and if you're a reader, I would encourage you to read some of Carson's books, they're first class. Don Carson, he put it like this, 
and I quote, he puts it better than I can, even after times of spectacular revival, reformation, or covenantal renewal, the people of God are never more than a generation or two away from infidelity, unbelief, massive idolatry, disobedience, and wrath. Without being over melodramatic, what he's really saying is church buildings that were once filled can be empty. Lights that were never off are now never on. Spiritual movements end up as stone monuments. Fruitful lives become fruitless and useful lives become useless and the doors are closed. One generation, two most. That's why he said to them, be very careful to love the Lord your God. Now, I hope this is not the last sermon I will ever preach, but you never know. But it's the text I want to bring to you, and in doing so, I want the text, as Jim Packer would say, to do the talking. You're not here to listen to me. We're here to listen to what God has to say. So let's allow the text to do the talking. One of the greatest, you know, richest, profoundest letters ever to be written to a group of Christians is the letter that the Apostle Paul wrote in AD 60 to the people of God living in Ephesus, modern-day Turkey. In the first half of that letter, the letter to the Ephesians, his exposition of the doctrines of grace is simply masterly. Lloyd-Jones, I don't know how many sermons he wrote on the first chapter in Ephesians. Masterly. In the second half of the letter... The way he practically applies the doctrine, Paul, to everyday living in the world, in the family, in the gathered church, could hardly be better. The church founded in Ephesus was a great church to be part of. It had a high standard of preaching and teaching, a high standard of doctrinal understanding, a high standard of living as far as the Christian life is concerned. But it's not just interesting, it's frightening. That in the first of the seven letters written to the churches in Asia Minor, in the book of the Revelation, written before the end of the first century, if you please, it was the church in Ephesus that had lost its first love for the Lord. It was only one generation later from when the church had been formed. I find that scary. The people in Ephesus still hated evil, of course they did, and they hated ease, and they actually hated error. But they didn't love the Lord as they once did. So the greatest danger facing the people of God in every age, and at every age, as we live out our brief lives in this wilderness of a world, is for you and I to lose our first love. For the Lord who first loved us. So very possible to fall away, turn away, walk away from a goodly heritage, throw away the gathered treasure of a lifetime of spiritual experience, even in the closing stages, even in the final stretch of this earthly life. That's why Joshua said what he said to them. 
Be very careful to love the Lord your God. Do you know what he's doing here? It's reminding us, isn't it? That Christianity is an awful lot more than knowing certain things. It is knowing certain things. Of course it is. God addresses our minds. That's why we've got a book full of words. It's knowing, But it's more than knowing certain things. It's more than believing certain things. Of course it's believing certain things. But it's more than that. And it's more than doing certain things. Yes, it is doing certain things, but it's more than that. What is this Christian life? It's essentially about experiencing at a personal level the love of God in the gospel. And then for the rest of our days, returning and reciprocating that love. And expressing that love wherever we go. As John puts it in 1 John 4.19, We love, he says. Some translations. We love him because he first loved us. The God who chose to love us wants us to choose to love him and not just like him. I don't know whether you've read any of the books of Leonard Ravenhill. He wrote the book Why Revival Tarries. It's a blistering book to read. Ravenhill was an evangelist down in the Midlands but he used to cross the Atlantic a lot and he would visit some friends, Keith Green, the singer, he would visit Keith Green. He would visit A.W. Tozer, the man who wrote many books and who was a pastor in different churches. One day he said to Tozer, in the course of a conversation, A.W., A.W. Tozer, A.W., I have met many people in your country who like God and like the idea of God, but I have met very few who love God. See, what God requires of us this morning is encapsulated in the Jewish Shema, isn't it? In the book of Deuteronomy. The Lord our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. That should at least be our aspiration, if not our achievement in this life. And I say that's what God requires of us because in the New Testament, didn't Jesus underline that very statement when he was asked a question what is it all about these commandments and so on did he not summarize it by simply saying you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength Christianity is not about keeping rules going through rituals jumping through hoops and making appearances at meetings nothing wrong with being at every meeting that's possible to be at, but it's it's about having a personal, intimate love relationship with him. That is biblical Christianity. And I don't know if you're not a Christian here this morning, you need to know that. That's what Christianity is all about. And if you are a Christian, you need to be reminded of that. And I have to say, and I'm saying it to myself, believe me, I'm saying it to myself. If we don't love him, I doubt very much if we know him. Against the background of God loving us in Christ, this text is telling us to be very careful to love him. I can hear George Verver from Operation Mobilization saying it to us as young people going out into Europe taking the gospel. Everything minus love equals nothing. You can give your body to be burned. You can give all your money away. You can have the greatest intellect. You can be the greatest preacher. But if you don't have love, you have nothing. You're just a noise. Now, what I want to do 
is bring out three points from that text. There's no use writing a letter if you don't put an address in the envelope. This, yes, these words were for the people of God in Joshua's day. But the God who speaks in his word continues to speak through that which he has spoken. And these are God's words for you and I today. What this text is doing is it's presenting us, first of all, with the challenge to be different. To be different. There aren't too many people around who can be described as lovers of God. You can go into any denomination you like. There aren't too many around. Luke wrote his gospel to someone called Theophilus. You may remember that. Theophilus, the word means loved by God or somebody who is a lover of God. Theophilus. I mean, are you a Theophilus? Am I a Theophilus? Do we really know in the heart of hearts, right down in the depths, that we are loved by God with an everlasting love? And are we lovers of that same God? Or does that kind of language come across as being over the top? A wee bit embarrassing? Too much? The world wants to squeeze us into its mould. You know that and I know that. The culture of today wants to squeeze us into the way it thinks. But neither the world nor the culture will ever give up trying to woo us seduce us, persuade us, tempt us to be lovers of self, lovers of ease, lovers of leisure, lovers of pleasure, lovers of money, lovers of stuff, lovers of anything, except be a genuine lover of God. That's what the world and that's what our present culture would like to do. The core of sin is to love what is not God as if it were God. That was the problem at the end of the day with Demas. Remember him? Demas. One of Paul's team. Oh, he was in Christian work, this man. I don't know whether he went to Bible college or not. But he was out doing missionary work, church planting. Demas. Well known by some of the greatest saints who have ever lived. But Paul had to say of him, Demas has forsaken me. Having loved this present evil world. What tragic words those are. There came a time in his life and it didn't happen overnight when he began to see the world as a kind of a playground instead of a battleground. How do we see it? I mean Israel's track record, the history of the people of God down through the ages underlines this very issue. How many of us are sold out to God to such a degree that we have a jubilant pining to know him better and to love him more? My favourite text is in the book of Proverbs. The path of the just is like a shining light that shines more and more unto the perfect day. Not less and less. The great temptation when we get to retirement is to take your foot off the pedal. And it can become less and less instead of more and more. God wants it to be more and more. You won't find any lovers of God in the world. But the big question is how many are there in the church? You might have to go a long way to find somebody who really loves God with a burning heart. Go back in your mind's eye for a moment to when Jesus put the question to Peter, Peter, three times. Now maybe the preachers are right. It was because Peter had failed the Lord by denying him three times that he posed the question to Peter three times. Saying to him, 
Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me, Peter? Now, I know there are different words in the original language in that passage. I wouldn't want to read too much into that at this point. But before you give your answer, just think for a minute. Think of Judas. One of the twelve. Astonishing. One of the twelve. Heard all Christ's sermons. Saw all Christ's miracles. Was with him every day, probably, for three years. What did he do? Well, he gave the impression that he loved the Lord, but he sold him for 30 pieces of silver. The man with the bag, the man, the treasurer, he sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And he betrayed Jesus. How did he do it? With a kiss, the symbol of affection. He kissed the one who was the door to heaven and he ended up in the caverns of hell, Judas. The poet went on to say, it may not be for silver and it may not be for gold, but still by tens of thousands is this precious saviour sold. Sold for a godless friendship. Sold for a selfish aim. Sold for a fleeting trifle. Sold for an empty name. Sold where the awful bargain, none but God's eye can see, ponder my soul the question, will it be sold by thee? Jesus is asking us the same question he asked Peter. Do you love me? It's very simple, very personal, very pointed. Do you love me? I mean, I could ask the question of all of us this morning. Do you read the Bible every day? I hope you do. Do you read it through once a year? I hope you do. Do you go with the church every Sunday? Are you a once or are you a twice -er? Are you at the prayer meeting? I could ask you all these questions. Do you take time to personally pray? Do you have a quiet time every day on your own? I hope we could tick all these boxes. These are the things you would expect a Christian to do. Make time to do. Take time to do. But doing them doesn't make us Christians. If you are a Christian, you'll be seen doing all these things. But the fundamental question we should all be asking ourselves, at least from time to time, and then honestly answering, is the question Jesus asked of Peter. Do you love me? That's all I want to know. Peter, do you love me? What does that mean? What does that mean? One of the things that will be true of the person who can answer the question in the affirmative is that it means that person, he or she, will be different. Different. Stand out from the crowd. Radically different. It will mean not being cool in certain company. Not being popular, not being the flavour of the month, not being one of the crowd. It will mean not going with the flow, even in some professing Christian circles. This text presents us with a challenge. It really does at the deepest level to be different. I don't mean become a puritanical fuddy-duddy. I just mean make sure that Jesus has the rightful place in your heart. Surely this has to be the irreducible minimum in being very careful to love the Lord, your God. You're distinctive, you're decisive, you're, you're different. Others may be rude at times and crude and unkind and ungracious, keep a record of wrongs and be unforgiving, but you can't. Why? Why not? Because you love the Lord, your God, that's why. Here's the second thing. 
The text goes on. It not just presents us with a challenge to be different, but it presents us with a challenge to be vigilant. Vigilant. You'll have noticed, it doesn't say be careful to love your Lord your God. It doesn't say that. It says be very careful to love the Lord your God. If you've got a King James, it doesn't say take heed to yourselves that you love the Lord your God. It says take good heed to yourselves. What is Joshua doing? He's underlining, he's emphasizing our responsibility as believers. In other words, this is not going to happen unless by the grace of God you and I make it happen. When a person becomes a Christian, they experience a revelation. Isn't that right? Fresh and blood has not revealed this unto you, Peter, but my Father in heaven. You know who I am? That's a revelation. You know what I've come to do? I've come to die in your place on a cross and take the wrath of God for you, go through hell for you. That's a revelation. But it ends up in becoming a revolution in the depths of our being. It's sometimes explained in terms of coming out of darkness into marvelous light, God's marvelous light, passing from death to life. That's pretty radical terminology, don't you think, in any language. The Bible calls it regeneration. Being born again, you receive a new life, you become a brand new person on the inside. There's a new dynamic at work in your life. It's it's brought you into a love relationship with the Lord, and it's that relationship that we have to assume responsibility for. Maintaining it, sustaining it with the passing of time as we face the world, the flesh, and the devil every day we live. What Joshua is getting at in this verse is if the fire is to keep burning brightly rather than cool down, burn low, we need to be vigilant. I'm 77. I know I don't look it, do I? No, thanks. I need to be vigilant. I've been a pastor for 45 years. I've been all over the world telling people about Jesus. I need to be vigilant. I can tell you, I need to be vigilant. We need to be vigilant and make right choices. Joshua would not have said this if there was no need for him to say it. And John Bunyan, I don't know whether you've read Pilgrim's Progress or not, but Bunyan draws attention to this in Pilgrim's Progress. When he takes Christian, remember on his journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city, uh, in one stage of the journey, he takes him into interpreter's house. And he paints a picture for us in interpreter's house, this bunion. He helps us to grasp the truth of, of what he wants us to learn. He pictures the devil hmm, throwing water on the fire burning in the heart of Christian to try and put the fire of love for God out, if he possibly can. But Bunyan goes on, with his genius to tell us that behind the scenes, behind a wall in the interpreter's house, the oil of Christ's grace is being channeled towards the heart of Christian to help Christian see how he can keep the fire burning. And brothers and sisters, that's where the battle, that is where the battle is won or lost. If God has lit a fire in our hearts in the first place, let me be quite clear on this, it can never go out. If God has lit a fire in your heart, it can never go out. I give unto my sheep eternal life, and they shall never perish. But I'll tell you, it can burn Gilo, that fire. So what we must do is this. We must learn to avail ourselves of the means of grace, so that on a daily basis we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, 
We say no to sin. We say yes to him. We take time to sit at the feet of Jesus as Mary did. Listen to what he has to say. We must see to it that our devotion to him is not replaced by our service for him, as was the case with Martha. And taking the words of Jim Elliot, one of the five who gave their lives. You can't surrender your life in an instant, he said. That which is lifelong can only be surrendered in a lifetime. I can remember occasions in meetings where an appeal was made, give your life, everything to Jesus. And I stood up, I went to the front. But I need to do that every day, and so do you. Now, I love those scriptures, and I'm sure you do too, that dwell on his love for us. Peter and Paul have much to say about it, as you know. The Bible is the greatest love story ever told. But Peter, how does he put it? He says, we are the elect according to the foreknowledge of God, he says. Wow. We could spend the next week in here, doors locked, just discussing that. It's a reference to God setting his love upon us. Not just before we were born. Not just before John Calvin or John Knox was born. Not just before Abraham, Isaac and Jacob were born. But before the universe was brought into being. He set his love upon us. That's how Peter puts it. How did Paul put it? I am persuaded, he says, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. That love in all its length and breadth and depth and height. But both these men, if you read them carefully, they also go on to tell us in no uncertain terms, in their own language, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, we need to learn to keep ourselves in the love of God. That requires effort on our part. That's a reasonable response to his great love for us. The one thing we must never do, I heard this slogan when I was a young Christian, and I understand what was meant by let go and let God. Listen. That is not the whole Christian life. There are certain things that you and I need to get a hold of because nobody else will do it on our behalf. You say, well, what, what are those things? We need to wrestle, we need to fight, we need to pray, we need to make deliberate, responsible choices, not always between what's good and what's bad, but between what's good and what's best. And if we don't do that, the chances are we'll end up like Demas one day or even Judas. And if you'll allow me to say so, you know, we need to come to terms with the primary interpretation of Revelation 3.20. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the doors, I'll come into him, sup with him and he with me. People use that as an evangelistic text. I've no problems with that if they want to do that. John Stott was converted through that text at a boy's camp. But those words in their primary application were to a church. It's as if Jesus is outside the door and we're doing everything inside here and we're keeping him out. Well, you open the door and let me in. That's what that text is all about. Spoken primarily to the church in Laodicea who professed to know the Lord. Has he got all the keys to all the rooms in your heart? Has he got all the keys to all the rooms in mine? Final point. Can you take one more? You're no, nobody's sleeping in here. Let me have a look at you. This is bonus. Be very careful. I'm, yeah, I'm talking to myself. Be very careful to love the Lord your God. This text presents us with a challenge to be different. If we do that, different. 
presents us with a challenge to be vigilant. But here's the big thing. It presents us with a challenge to be obedient. See, where the rubber hits the road, that is exactly what this text is teaching us. It's calling us, as the old hymn puts it, trust and obey, for there is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Now, what is this love that he is referring to? The love that is mentioned here is certainly not what Tozer would call sentimental slush. The love that is mentioned here is not just you know, nice feelings, at least not all the time. It's not the feel-good factor he's talking about. It's not the fuzzies inside. This love is bound up with gospel obedience. Jesus said, if you love me, what will you do? You'll keep my commandments. Love without obedience is meaningless. Some years ago I read through the autobiography of Professor F.F. F. Bruce, the great Brethren scholar. When I was converted, my home church is Wishel Baptist. Some of the old men there, they used to say, John, read biographies, read autobiographies. And I've been doing that for the last 60 years almost. And I read F.F. F. Bruce's. Now, to be honest, it wasn't a very inspiring read comparison to others, but I'm the kind of person I start a book, I've got to finish it, my wife starts it she doesn't get oil in the first chapter she passes it to me (laughs) but I read the book right through and this is what I gleaned from the great scholar love to God, he says and obedience to God are so completely involved in each other that any one of them implies the other in other words, you can't think of the one without the other I think Augustine of Hippo Hippo, modern-day Algeria today, a city town in modern-day Algeria. Augustine in the 4th century, he put this beautifully when he summed up the Christian life by saying, now listen to this, he said, love God and do what you like. When I first read that, I thought, what? That sounds dangerous. Love God and do what you like. But you have to think a wee bit deeper and longer to see what Augustine was really saying. He he, he didn't say make a decision and then do what you like. He didn't say make a profession of faith and then do what you like. He didn't say get baptised and do what you like. He didn't say join the church and do what you like. No, no, he said love God and do what you like. And what he was really saying was if you really love God then what you will like, what you will want to do will be that which God likes and what God wants. In other words, you'll want to obey him. And you'll not find, as John tells us in his first epistle, his commandments to be burdensome. I like John, not just because John's a nice name, isn't it? (laughs) John is a black and white man. John. He just fires from the hip, doesn't he? He tells it as it is. We know that we know him, he says, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, and doesn't keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now, if you read the last two chapters of Joshua through, you will see that Joshua is warning Israel way back then about doing those things, you know, those acts of disobedience, those acts of partial obedience, those acts of compromise, those acts of convenience that could so easily become traps and snares and whips for their backs and thorns in their eyes. But he knows the remedy for all of this. Be very careful to love the Lord your God. That's the remedy. 
He knows how we can avoid them. He tells us that it can only be if we're careful to love him. And that means being willing to be different, willing to be vigilant, willing to be obedient. And if we do that, then all the possible stumbling stones, and there are many of them around, they'll become stepping stones to a richer, deeper, fuller life in God himself. As Dr. John MacArthur Jr. from California puts it, never throw God the bone of your love without the meat of obedience on it. Or if you prefer it from Oswald Chambers, the best measure of a spiritual life is not its ecstasies, it's it's obedience. <coughs> Didn't Jesus say, listen, if God's your father, you'll love me. That's how he put it. I'm finished. German theologian Tyler, this is the last. He put it like this. As the bridegroom to his chosen, as the king unto his realm, as the keep unto his castle, as the pilot, to the helm, so Lord art thou to me. As the fountain in the garden, as the candle in the dark, as the treasure in the coffer, as the manna in the ark, so Lord art thou to me. As the ruby in its setting, as the honey in the comb, as the light within the lantern, as the father in the home, so Lord art thou to me. As the sunshine to the heaven, as the image to the glass, as the fruit unto the fig tree, as the dew unto the grass, so, Lord, art thou to me. Be very careful to love the Lord your God. Don't misunderstand me when I say this. There'll be no Baptists in heaven. There'll be no Presbyterians. There'll be no Methodists. There'll be no Congregationalists. There'll be no Catholics. There'll be no Pentecostals. There'll be no Charismatics. There'll only be Christians there. Who are these people? They are a people that God has saved by faith alone, by grace alone, faith alone in Christ alone, because he loves them, and they love him. So we're going to sing a hymn. I can remember learning this for the first time in Wishaw.